You're listening to the Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church, where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Well, it is good to see you. Uh, As we have already said, if you have been with us at all, you should know that we're working through a series on the Lord's Prayer. If this is your first time with us, what we've been talking about is how the Lord's Prayer is arguably one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Like even if you did not grow up in a religious household, it is highly likely that you have heard this prayer from Jesus. But one of the things that we've been talking about this semester together is that this prayer was never meant to be just something that we recite out of tradition or anything like that, but instead it was meant to guide us into prayer ourselves. And that as Jesus gives us this prayer, he's teaching us the types of things that we should pray about. He's teaching us ways in which we are to relate to God, the things in which we are to bring to him. And so we've been going line by line through this Lord's Prayer and just talking about what each line in this prayer means. And we talked about how the first three weeks, going through those first three lines, those first three lines are kind of like perspective shifts. That they're perspectives that we need to have that we need to learn how to see God as our Father who is in heaven. That it's a glorious truth that the almighty, holy, powerful God is the same one who invites us to know him in a relationship as a father. Whenever we see that line, we see both God's power and God's love for us combined, and the result in our heart is just freedom that we can approach him as dearly beloved children. Then we talked about how And we're supposed to cry out, hallowed be your name. And what that means is that we're declaring that we want God's name to be regarded as holy. We want all peoples in all places to know the glory of King Jesus. And then we talked about this prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about how we were never meant to be bystanders in the movement of God. We're meant to be people who join with God and are part of the kingdom of light advancing here on earth. But the first three weeks our perspective shifts, then what we talked about last week is that we kind of, we move into that next prayer of give us this day our daily bread. And what we see is we move from perspective shifts to practical needs. And what we saw last week is that God is the same God who invites us to, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That same God invites us to ask for the daily things as well. And what we talked about last week is that God is not just the God of our miraculous salvation but he's the God of our daily provision, that he gives us all that we need. And whenever we begin to see that God is in control of all things, not just the big, but the small, we can learn to trust him. And the result in our heart is that we can let go of worry. We can let go of anxiety. We can let go of fear because we know the one who is in control of all things. But tonight, we come to a new line. In the Lord's Prayer, we see that prayer of give us this day our daily bread. And then we see forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And so what we're here to talk about tonight is forgiveness. And what we're going to see tonight is that forgiveness is a daily need of ours as well. Like we all need the forgiveness of God. Everyone in this room, we all need the forgiveness of God. We are all broken people who have done broken things, who need God's forgiveness. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But not only do we need the forgiveness of God, but we also need help in learning how to forgive others. We need help to learn how to forgive in the way that God has called us to forgive. Because we live in a broken world. 
filled with broken people. And broken people are going to hurt you. You're going to experience pain in this life. We're going to experience relational conflict. And we need to know how to deal with that. We need to learn how to ask for forgiveness ourselves and how to show forgiveness to those around us. This is something we need each and every day. Whenever I was thinking about that this week, I was just kind of had a flashback to my childhood home. I remember growing up, my, my brother and I, my brother's two years younger than me. And so as you can imagine, growing up, it's just the two of us, we're pretty close in age. There was a lot of tension in the Tarver household. We'd fight a lot. And upstairs was, were our rooms, and in between our rooms was a shared bathroom. And I remember at one point, my mom put a Bible verse up in the bathroom. She didn't like ask us if we wanted to redecorate the bathroom. She just put a Bible verse up in the bathroom and it was this blue like cardstock sheet of paper. And the Bible verse was Ephesians 4.32, which says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. She hung this up. It's like a stereotypical passive-aggressive Christian mom thing to do, right? Like she's just like putting this in our face. So every single day we'd see this sign. We'd be coming like from fighting one another or being so mad at one another and you'd go into the bathroom and you'd see this sign, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. We saw that every single day. I can see that blue picture, that blue cardstock like burned into my mind and that was like over 15 years ago. Like, it's crazy that that still has stuck with me. But what my mom was trying to do is she was trying to open our eyes to a very important reality. She was trying to remind my brother and I that those of us who have been forgiven by God should forgive other people. And that's what Jesus is trying to show his disciples in this prayer. He's trying to show them something very similar. He's trying to teach his disciples that forgiveness matters. Forgiveness matters a whole lot to Jesus. It's something he talks about a ton. So he, he encourages us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but then he, he encourages us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And forgiveness matters so much to Jesus that this is the only line in the Lord's prayer that comes with a clarifier. Like the only line that gets further explanation in the Lord's prayer is this one, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives us a warning. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a warning from Jesus, and it is meant to grab our attention. Like he uses this jarring statement on purpose. He's trying to grab our attention to show us the reality of the importance of forgiveness and the severity of choosing not to forgive. And this statement is a hard statement. And if you take this statement out of context and just examine it on its own, it can lead you to believe all kind of wrong things about God. And so what I wanna do tonight is take some time to look at what Jesus teaches us about Forgiveness and to examine this within its context. Whenever you study scripture or you hear someone else talk about what scripture means, you need to understand that context always matters. We can take a passage of scripture out of context and make it say whatever we want it to say, but whenever you see it in context, you're able to see more fully what this means. And so, what I want to do tonight is I want to see this passage of scripture in its immediate context of Matthew chapter 6. 
And I also want to examine this text and this teaching on forgiveness in the context of Jesus' other teachings on forgiveness. And the hope for tonight is as we begin to get a more holistic view of what Jesus teaches us about forgiveness, that we would begin to step into all that he has for us and that we would begin to forgive others the way that he's called us to. So that's where we're headed tonight. First, examining this text in its immediate context. Hopefully at this point you know that the Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew chapter six. We flip there every single week. What you hopefully also know is that the Lord's Prayer is a, great, is a part of a greater section of teaching. That the Lord's Prayer is part of what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus gives this sermon and in the very middle of it is this Lord's Prayer. And so because that is true, it's important for us to understand what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole if we want to understand these lines from the Lord's Prayer. And we don't have time tonight to like recap all of the Sermon on the Mount. We did an entire series on that two years ago. If you're interested, you can go listen to it on the podcast. It's still there, I think. But what you need to know about the Sermon on the Mount is this. That in this sermon, in this section of teaching from Jesus himself, he's teaching us the way that we were meant to live our lives as citizens of heaven. What Jesus is doing throughout the entirety of the Lord's Prayer is he's drawing our eyes to the reality that our lives are meant to look dramatically different than the world all around us. That we're not meant to look like everyone else. If we belong to God, if we are the people of God, that we are meant to live our lives differently. We're not meant to just do the bare minimum when it comes to our relationships with Jesus. We are meant to live lives differently. We, as citizens of the kingdom, are meant to reflect the character of the king. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is reflecting the character of the king. One of the things that helps me whenever I think about the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to put this on the, the screens behind me, is that, that what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us is that upstream realities impact downstream behaviors. That's what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, that upstream realities impact downstream behaviors. What the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us is that what has been done for us by God should impact the way that we live. You understand that? That because of what God has done, because of who he is and who we have experienced him to be, we then live our lives differently as a result. Because of who God is and what he has done and who we have come to know him to be, that we don't just refrain from murder, but that we refrain from anger. Because of who God is and what he has done, we don't just refrain from adultery, we refrain from lust. Because of who God is, And what he has done, we don't just love our neighbor and those who look like us, but we love our enemies and those who seek to persecute us. This is the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. All of it is rooted in who God is and what he has done. Upstream realities impact downstream behaviors. But what we see throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is to to actually live this out to actually put these teachings into practice, we need a power other than our own. Like we cannot accomplish this by our own willpower. We need the power of God to display the character of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is drawing our attention to. Like we can't live this out on our own. We need God's power working in us and through us to deal with our anger, to deal with our lust, to help us to love all people and not just those who are like us. We need his help to carry out these teachings. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount shows us. And this teaching on forgiveness is no different. What we have experienced from God is meant to impact the way that we live. And just like that sign that my mom hung in our childhood home, Jesus is trying to show us that because we have experienced the forgiveness from God, we are meant to show that forgiveness to others. That the way we forgive others is meant to look a whole lot like the way that God has forgiven us. What Jesus is doing here in the Lord's Prayer, and he, what he's doing in that section of Matthew 4, uh, 6, 14 through 15, is that he's showing us that God's forgiveness of, for, of us and our forgiveness of others are inextricably linked. They're tied together. They're bound together. That Those who have been shown radical forgiveness ought to be ones who freely forgive others. And he's showing us, by contrast, that if you are unwilling to forgive others, if you hold unforgiveness in your heart and you are unwilling to forgive someone else, then perhaps it shows that you've never experienced his forgiveness in full in the first place. That's what Jesus is showing here. He's showing us what forgiveness is all about. And what he's showing us is this, that forgiveness, it's not transactional, okay? Transactional forgiveness would look like this. Because I forgive you, then God forgives me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that, that forgiveness is transactional. He's saying that forgiveness is transformational. That because God has forgiven me, I now forgive you. You understand that? They're not the same thing. Transactional says, if I forgive you, then God will forgive me. Transformational says, no, God has forgiven me, so I will forgive you. Because that forgiveness has transformed me to my very core. This is what Jesus teaches about forgiveness. And we see that modeled in places like Matthew chapter 18, which Chandler read for us a moment ago. And I want to spend the bulk of our time just unpacking this incredible story together. If you go back and you read Matthew 18 later, you will see that there is much teaching in that chapter about reconciliation and about how we are meant to live our lives together. And Jesus, through Matthew 18, is showing us that we're going to have relational conflict in this world. Like it's going to happen. We live in a broken world with broken people. Of course, there are gonna be broken relationships. And he teaches us how to deal with those things. And so he teaches us a lot about forgiveness and how to deal with those things in Matthew chapter 18. And there's this cute little dialogue that happens between Peter and Jesus in Matthew 18. That after some of this teaching on forgiveness, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, okay, Jesus, so if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And then he offers a number. Seven times. And that's not just like a random number for Peter. What you need to know is based on that day, rabbis in that day or teachers in that day taught their disciples or their followers that the most that you ever had to forgive someone was three times. And so whenever Peter offers the number of seven times, like you gotta think he's feeling pretty good about himself, right? Like he's like, seven times? Like he's like, kind of like super spiritual of Peter, right? And Jesus says, no, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times, or 77 times, depending on your translation. So the number's not important. What Jesus is trying to show Peter is that you're not meant to count forgiveness. It's meant to characterize who you are. Like it's not meant to be something that you keep track of. It's meant to be who you are. And he illustrates that 
by telling this incredible story, story of a kingdom in which there's a servant who has racked up an incredible debt, and he goes before the king to settle his debts, and the the text tells us that this servant has racked up a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, that number does not mean anything to us. We don't keep track of money like that anymore. But I just want you to understand the magnitude of this debt, okay? 10,000 talents. Okay, a talent was worth, in that day, a talent was worth 6,000 days wages. So 6,000 days of labor was worth one talent. So to put that in perspective of the modern day, let's just say you work a five-day work week. They worked longer than that, but for our context, let's say you work a five-day work week. 6,000 working days is 23 years. So one talent is 23 years worth of wages. So if my math is correct, engineering majors, you can check me later. If my math is correct, 10,000 talents is 230,000 years worth of labor and wages. That is a ridiculous debt. Like there is, you, you think your student debt's bad? That's bad. Like you can't, there is no way, there's no way you could ever repay this debt. And that's why his response in verse 26 is laughable. In verse 26, it says that the servant fell to his knees and implored the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This is a stupid thing to say. Like there's no way he could pay this back. He could work over 2,000 lifetimes and never pay that back. There is no amount of effort that he could ever put forth to settle the debt that he had accrued for himself. No amount of his own work would ever get him there. And the king knows that. The text tells us that the king had compassion on him and that he lets him go and he releases him. And understand, that's not just like, a, all right, you go and just kind of pay me a little bit as you go. He's letting him go and he's releasing him of the debt completely. He's saying, you see this debt that you have accrued, that you could have never paid on your own, completely forgiven. That's radical mercy. That is amazing grace. That is unbelievable forgiveness displayed by this king. He's taking on that debt himself so that his servant can walk free. Do not miss that. It's not like he's just like, okay, forget it. Like that, that is money he was owed and now he just says, slate wipe clean. Let's the servant go. You would expect that if that servant experienced that, his life would be completely different after that. Like surely, after experiencing this abundant mercy, he would then go and do likewise. That's what you would expect. That's not what we see. Instead, we see him walk out of this meeting with the king, and what does he do? He finds another servant, one who owes him money. And the sum of money that is owed to him is 100 denarii. And again, this doesn't mean anything to us, but to break this down, a, denar- a denarius was one day's wages, okay? So a talent, 6,000 denarii, okay? You understand this? This is the equivalent. One talent, 6,000 denarii. One denarius is one day's wages. This guy owed him 100 denarii, so 100 days wages. So to put that in like college student terms, let's say you make $10 an hour and you work eight hours a day, 
It's $80 a day. $80 a day, 100 days, $8,000. So what that shows us is like, this is a significant debt. Like if your buddy owed you eight grand, you would feel it, right? Like that's something you would know. Like it's not like, oh yeah, that's pocket change. Like we get it. Like that's a significant debt. But what we see is that in comparison to what he had just been forgiven, this debt does not even, it's not even pennies to what he was just forgiven. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what he was just forgiven. He was just forgiven much, and what he is asking for is such a small number in comparison. But this servant takes the other servant by the throat and takes him to jail and throws him in prison until he was able to pay the hundred denarii. And as the reader, whenever you get to that point, that is supposed to shock you. Like you're supposed to be like, what in the world is, like how could you do this? This makes no sense. Like you've just been forgiven a massive debt. How could you be so unmerciful? How could you be so unforgiving? How could you be so ungracious? Consider what was done for you. How could you not show mercy as well? It's the whole point of the story. The other servants, they see this and they take him back before the king and they make him report everything that he has done. And the king says, you are a wicked servant. I was merciful to you. Should you not have shown mercy in return? What he shows us, the citizens of the kingdom are meant to display the character of the king. And so because this servant does not appreciate the forgiveness that was shown to him, he's then thrown out until he can repay the debt. What that story shows us is that by being unwilling to extend forgiveness to his fellow servant, this guy demonstrated that he had never understood the forgiveness of the king in the first place. All of this demonstrates something really significant for us tonight. Our main point tonight is this, it's simple. It's gonna be behind me on the screens. That forgiveness received should become forgiveness extended. Forgiveness received should become forgiveness extended. If we belong to God, that means we've experienced the radical forgiveness of all of our wrongdoing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that is something that we have experienced, then we should be willing to forgive others. And hear me really clearly, to do anything else does not make sense. That should not, unforgiveness should not be characteristic of the people of God. That the upstream reality of forgiveness received should become the downstream behavior of forgiveness extended. That is what is meant to characterize your life. This matters to Jesus. He cares about this. He desires for his people to be a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. That matters We should be people who freely forgive because of the forgiveness that was offered to us. But here's the deal. We've got to ask the question, how in the world do we do this? How do we actually extend this forgiveness? How do we forgive that roommate for what they did? How do we forgive that parent? How do we forgive whoever? Fill in the blank. How do I actually begin to do this. I want to give you two practical points. One on forgiveness received and one on forgiveness 
extended. And we're going to talk about what it means for us to be a people of forgiveness. Okay, so to be a people of forgiveness, we must first do this. It's going to be behind me on the screens. We must acknowledge, ask, and appreciate. We must acknowledge, ask, and appreciate. If we want to be a people of forgiveness, we must first acknowledge our own need for forgiveness. And we must ask for that forgiveness and we must appreciate the forgiveness that was shown to us. You see, here's the deal. I think it's easy for us to sit in a room like this in 2023, reading this story in Matthew 18 and point fingers at this wicked servant. Like, man, come on, dude. Like, how did you miss that? Like, how are you that dumb? Like, how could you miss this? How could you be so unforgiving and so unkind? But can we just, can we hit pause for a second? And can we just be honest, take a step back and look at our own life and realize that we often do the same thing? We often forget or don't even realize the depth of what has been done for us. We often forget the depth of the forgiveness that has been extended to us in Jesus. Here's what I see a lot in the context in which we live. Many of us, not all of us, but many of us were raised with at least some knowledge of Christianity and religion, right? We were raised with at least some knowledge of that. And a lot of us, I'd say almost all of us, were raised with the idea that it's generally favorable to be a decent, kind person, right? And because of those two things, because of a moderate understanding of Christianity, a moderate understanding of religion, and just the, uh, like, desire to be a good person, we have convinced ourselves that we're pretty good people. And we look at our lives in comparison to people we see on the news or whatever, and we have in our idea that, you know, in compared to other people, like, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I hadn't murdered anybody. Like, I'm a pretty good person. And because of that mentality, oftentimes we don't understand our own need for forgiveness. But you've got to understand the standard that we are held to before God is not how we compare to the lives of others. God does not grade your life on a curve. It's not like how well you compare to the other people around you. The standard we are held to is the degree to which our actions go against God. I've used this analogy before. I, I took it from a book from uh, David Platt, and I've adapted it a little bit, but just this has helped me understand the magnitude of sin, and I want you to understand this tonight. So let's say, I'm going to pick on David Mathis for a second. Everybody say, hey, David. Great. Let's say David and I are hanging out, and David gets upset at something that I say, and David just gets, he feels really strong for a second, and he just reaches up and he slaps me across the mouth, like as hard as he can, just smacks me right across the face. What do you think is going to happen in that moment? You think, like, the lunch is going to continue? Probably not. Like, the lunch is going to be over, and we're probably not having lunch together for a while. Like, it's going to cause some relational tension. We're going to have to, like, have some distance. I'm not going to fight him back because I'm the bigger man, obviously. And so, like, we're just, we're going to have some distance. But by and large, we go about our lives. Now, let's imagine David leaves here tonight. He's speeding down Highway 78, gets pulled over by a GSP, gets mad at the GSP, and slaps this police officer in the face. What do you think is going to happen? David's probably going to jail, right? It's a bigger deal. Things have escalated. Lock him up. Thank you, Michael. Let's take it one step further. 
Let's imagine for a second that David has the high honor of going to a foreign country and being in front of a king of a nation. And for whatever reason, David's just decided that he's really into slapping people now. And he slaps this king in the face. What do you think is going to happen? Guillotine. (laughs) David's probably not making that out of that one alive. Here's the deal. We have this tendency to think about our offenses in comparison to the offenses of another. And we compare our offenses to the offenses of another. And what this analogy shows us is that it's not the magnitude of the offense. It's the magnitude of the one offended. And what I want you to understand is that all of our wrongdoing, all of our sin, all of what we do that goes against the way that God created us to be, the lies that we tell, the things that we think, the the wicked things that come out of our mouths, even the smallest of things in our mind, all of it, it's not just a sin against you. And it's not just a sin against another person. It is a sin against a holy and mighty God. And because of that, it is deserving of his just punishment. Whenever we begin to see that, we begin to realize that we are like the servant in this story. That all of us in this room have amounted, amassed a debt that we could never pay on our own. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that there is a debt on your end that needs to be settled. And there is no amount of effort that you could ever give to cover that debt. Just like the servant in the story, there's no amount of lifetimes that you could live to pay off the debt that you have accrued. But the good news of the gospel is that just like the servant in the story, that we too have been offered amazing grace and abundant mercy from a kind and compassionate king. And the gospel tells us that even though we have accrued this massive debt, that Jesus comes to offer forgiveness anyway. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus is the true king in this story, forgiving the debt that his servants could never repay. Jesus is the one that took the cost upon himself, and he died the death that we deserve. And on that cross, he hung there, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what has been offered to you. This is the gospel. We have to acknowledge our debt before the Lord and we have to humbly come before him and ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is glorious news. And I want you to pause long enough to ponder what has been done for you, to appreciate the magnitude of the forgiveness that was shown to you. Here's the deal, guys. Let's just be, we live our lives at such a high speed, jumping from thing to thing to thing, that we often don't take time to realize and let it sink in that we are a people who have been offered radical forgiveness from a holy, mighty, glorious, loving God. So can we just pause for a second right here in this room? And take a moment to consider what this means for you. That because of what Jesus has done, every wrong that you have ever done, 
Every wrong that you will ever commit, if we come to Jesus and we acknowledge our sin and we ask him for forgiveness, we can receive forgiveness from every single one of our sins. Don't let this be a theoretical thing. Let this be a personal thing. Those public sins that people know about that you wish they would forget and those private sins that you try to keep hidden because you're terrified of what might happen if people found out that you struggled with this. Jesus knows all of it. And he offers forgiveness to you through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so if we want to be a people of forgiveness, we must first acknowledge our need for forgiveness. Ask for that forgiveness and then take a moment to appreciate what has been done for us. That is forgiveness received. And then, once we get to that place, whenever it comes to forgiveness extended, we must do something else, and that's the second point. We must recognize, remember, and release. We must recognize, remember, and release. That if we want to be people who learn how to extend forgiveness to others, we have to first recognize the pain that was done to us. We have to recognize the debt that is owed to us. It's one of the many things that I love about the story in Matthew chapter 18. Like there's a real debt owed to this servant. Jesus is not trying to make light of that. Like he could have made this number significantly smaller, but 100 denarii, 100 days wages is a real number that is not insignificant. And what that shows us is that we need to recognize the debt that is owed to us, right? Like some of you in the room have experienced some very real pain in your life. Like people have actually wronged you. And it's not just like you got your feelings a little hurt because somebody said something mean on the playground. Like you've experienced some real pain. And hear me really clearly. It does not do you any good to act like that debt is not there. Anyone who tells you to just forget about it and move on has no idea what they're talking about. That is not good advice. You need to recognize the debt that was owed to you. That pain that was caused by that parent that wasn't there. That hurtful thing that that influential person said about you that still sticks with you to this day. The physical, emotional, sexual abuse that you endured whenever you were a child. All of those things are real. And in a room this size, there's people who have dealt with each and every one of these things. To act like they didn't happen does you no good. You need to recognize the debt that is owed to you. But in that recognition, you also need to take a moment to remember what was done for you. This is what Jesus is getting at in the story. This debt that was owed to the servant was a significant debt, but when compared to the debt that he was forgiven, it does not even hold a candle to what was done for him. What Jesus is trying to show us is that all of this is an exercise in perspective. That yes, there are hurtful things that will be done to us in this life, and no one, no one, hear me very clearly, no one is trying to minimize the pain that you have walked through. I want you to hear me very, very clearly. In a talk like this, whenever we're talking about pain from our past, there's always real things that come up. As the college pastor of this church, I want you to understand that this is a place where you can always be honest about your pain. And you will never 
be belittled for your pain. You'll never be told to just forget it and move on. I'm not trying to minimize anyone's pain. We want to deal with the pain with you. But one of the ways that we deal with it is that we view it in light of the cross. We view it in light of what has been done for us. And we begin to see the amazing grace shown to us so that we can then show grace to others. John Stott was a famous English theologian and he once said that once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offenses against God, the injuries with which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely small. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. I want us to understand that. Like if we see sin rightly and the forgiveness shown to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we will be able to more freely forgive. But if we view the sins of others done against us as worse than our sins done against God, we've missed it. We've missed it. And I want you to see that. I say that from a place of love and a place of gentleness and a place of humility. I want you to see this. This is how we become people of forgiveness. We need to recognize the debt that was done to us, remember what was done on the cross, and then release the bitterness, release the anger, lay it all down at the foot of the cross. There are some of you who are carrying some very real anger and some very real unforgiveness, and it's doing nothing but keeping you bound. And I want to invite you tonight in the power of God to release those things. This is not something you do just out of your own power and your own kindness. You do this because of what you have experienced, because of what has been done for you. You then forgive others. This will not be easy. No one is telling you that it will be. I love the the brutal honesty of author and theologian Dallas Willard. He says, if anyone tells you that following Jesus is easy, they are a liar. Like the way of Jesus is not easy. We need his help every step of the way, especially whenever it comes to those who have wronged us. If we're going to forgive like this, it will never happen through our own willpower. We need the power of God. I'm going to close with this. A story from a lady by the name of Corey Ten Boom. This story is just a beautiful picture of what this type of forgiveness looks like. So the band can go ahead and come back up. If you're unfamiliar with Corey Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch woman whose family lived during the Nazi regime. And she and her family took it upon themselves to protect Jews who were being persecuted by Nazi Germany. And they began to take them in, help them flee the country, and they got caught. And Corey and her sister get thrown into a concentration camp by the name of Ravensbrück. And in that concentration camp, she sees all kinds of inhumanity. But perhaps the worst of it is that she watches her sister, mistreated, malnourished, slowly die in that place. Corey makes that alive, but her sister does not. And after time has passed, she begins to write and teach about the goodness of God and his forgiveness shown towards all men. And she begins to travel and speak and talk about God's forgiveness. And at one such moment, she's in the city of Munich and she's given an address about the forgiveness of God. And as she concludes the address, people just kind of silently get up and walk out of the room. 
No real response. Except for one man who begins to walk down towards her. And it's a man that she recognizes immediately as a former guard of the same concentration camp that she was held. And she says this. I'm going to read. This is a little long, but I want you to hear it from her own words. This is her own account of what happened. He says that he was there in front of me. He thrust out his hand. He said, a fine message. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him. And I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. The man said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from you as well. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, but I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow and terrible death just from the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. So I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And then listen to this. She says, but forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And they can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And so I prayed, help me. God, I can lift my hand, but you must supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That's what we're talking about. We forgive because of what has been done for us. Forgiveness received should become forgiveness extended. If we honestly desire to be a city on a hill shining brightly for the glory of God, we must learn to forgive others in the same way that we have forgiven us. And the way we do that is that we acknowledge our own sin, ask for forgiveness and appreciate what has been done for us. And we recognize the debts against us, but remember them in light of the cross and learn to release them in the power of God. My desire for us is that we would be men and women who show the world more of who our God is, more of his exceeding mercy, his abundant forgiveness, his amazing grace. Would you pray with me?